0: This is a Soul Fire production. Welcome to the Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and undoing the programming within us. Let's find your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great unlearn. Today's guest is an old college buddy of mine. When I say old, I mean it's been over 25 years since we've, we left the great Amherst College. Um, so today, I want to welcome on Luke Ryan to the Great Unlearn. And just as a, a, a bit of background on Luke, uh, Luke's dad and grandfather were both judges, and he has said that he grew up with this kind of sense of certain rights and wrongs. But his father impressed upon him that the state can yield a lot of power against the individual, and I think we're seeing that in in large degree right now. But it, it really paints a lot of the work that, that Luke has done. So I think it's important to recognize that. Now, also at the age of 16, Luke's best friend committed suicide. And that is something that, you know, Luke and I were college roommates and I knew nothing about that. And so I think, again, that's an important part of his life that, um, that we'll get into later on in the episode. By the time he got to Amherst in 1990, Luke self-proclaimed, didn't have a drugs and alcohol problem as much as a drugs and alcohol solution. So we'll get into that as well later on into the episode. Now, fortunately, by the age of 26, he found sobriety and got involved with a church ministry group that was more than tapped into racial, uh, racial justice. Through that group, he realized that white privilege kept him from becoming a convict, and he has stated, I'd like to say... There, but for the grace of God, go I. But I think it's more there, but for the grace of privileges I received due to my race and socioeconomic status, go I. I was permitted to have this kind of sowing of wild oats stage in my life that so many of my clients are not given. So I think in in addition to having empathy, there's a debt that I feel. And so I think a lot of us probably listening today Understand that we've been given a a long leash to, to sow those wild oats without any repercussions. Now, Luke entered the Western New England College School of Law at the ripe old age of 30 and graduated magna cum laude in 2005. In 2016, Luke was recognized as a Massachusetts super lawyer and began serving on the board for the Massachusetts Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. That same year, he received the Edward J. Dugan Award for zealous advocacy and outstanding legal services to the poor. In 2017, Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly selected Luke as one of its Lawyers of the Year. Now, how did Luke earn all these prestigious awards? You can look no further than his incredibly inspiring work on the four part Netflix series titled how to fix a drug scandal. That's how Luke and I reconnected. I was watching like everybody else in the nation about Joe exotic and Carol Baskin. And when that series was over, I'm like, Oh, what else is on? And I looked at the trailer to how to fix a drug scandal. And I saw Luke who at that point is bald as you see, if you're watching on, on, uh, the YouTube right now, uh, and it was like, my I told Peyton, my wife, is. I think that's my old college roommate. And so I, you know, I end up watching it and sure enough, it's Luke. And not only, you know, he had a bit part in the trailer, but a, a really incredible part throughout the whole series. Um, he's the main lawyer involved, representing both Rolando Panate and Rafael Rodriguez. Uh, but he ends up representing thousands more. So anyway, that's a very long introduction, but I think it's important to get a lot of that out on the table so that Luke and I can get into the juicy stuff. And in, in within that, it's I want to talk about the Netflix series, for one. Um, I want to talk about the effects of um, losing your friend to suicide at the age of 16. Uh, I want to know what happened at the age of 26 that created that shift in you where something had to change. Um and 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 I really from the for someone who's on the inside I want to know more about the racial and socioeconomic inequity that you see on a daily basis in the criminal justice system and we are going to talk about white privilege um and you and I have talked about it a little bit on the phone but I think you have some some really valuable insights for someone who's been working under that awareness for a long time where I think many of us or and I will speak for myself in particular, I'm just starting to own that part of, of who I am, and um, and I think certainly with everything that's going on today, it's important that we have that discussion. So anyway, without further ado, thanks for coming on, brother. It's great to see you. It is
1: absolutely my pleasure. So thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, so uh, tell us a little bit about, I mean, I mentioned your, your dad and your granddad, um, but you know one of the things in and you've talked about it in in many interviews you've been in that you didn't take many breaths, I think, in college without you know a few drinks. and so that um that's how you and i i mean we we partied a lot, um, we technically both played on the golf team together i was I was uh, a little bit more than a glorified caddy. But in any event, we, we had this particular college experience. And I think that even through all of that, um, and you were one of the greatest all-time smartasses I have, I've ever met, and, and it does come out in the Netflix series, which I was great to see that you haven't let go of that. Um, but I always had this sense that you did have this idea of right and wrong. And there were times when I know that you called me out for a comment that I would make and be like, hmm, yeah, no, that's not okay. Like you're grouping everyone together and that's just a stereotype and that's not even right. And so um, of all the things I remember of our, our time spent together in college, those are the things that stand out and to see you take that to a much larger degree and um, was, was amazing for me to see on the Netflix series. And then obviously the conversation we had afterwards was great for us to catch up, but I'd love to kind of have that come out a little bit more for everyone to hear. So I guess just more about that sense of right and wrong.
1: Yeah. So um, I did have uh, an upbringing that was uh, law was kind of in the air that I breathed. My dad um, was a lawyer for as long as I can remember. He was a district attorney. He was a judge. And, um, when he would come home at the end of the day, he would kind of relive his day. And it was all about these kind of courtroom dramas and these moments where, um, kind of justice hung in the balance. So I don't think I was ever like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. Um, in fact, I, I, there, I was pretty sure that, uh, I did not want to be a lawyer. And I, the time that we knew each other, there was no part in my brain that I was thinking, oh, someday I'm just looking forward to take the LSATs and go to law school. And, um, and, and so, um, but I, I, definitely think it was just, it was formative and it was, um, it was the sort of thing where, um, it, it, it was formative in a couple of different ways. One in, in the sense that when I eventually decided that this was something that I wanted to do and kind of had an epiphany that a law degree would, would, would help people that I cared about. um, as I entered into that arena, like it kind of made sense. Like the law, uh, it was a language that I had been spoken around me for a period of time. Um, and then the other way that you alluded to it, that it was, was formative, was I think people just had expectations of me that allowed me to kind of flounder for a period of time without kind of losing the ability to then one day, you know, as I'm in my mid or late twenties where I could make that kind of decision and certain doors hadn't already been closed to me because of, uh, how I, of choices I'd been making. So that was really the, the, the backdrop for what, um, uh, I think, uh, it was, a uh, being around people who cared about the law and knew about the law and, and impressed upon me on some kind of, I don't know, cellular level, this idea that the law could be a force for good. And then, Um, you know, it, 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 I think it was a, uh, it, it, it gave me a, um, it it just gave me a chance to, um, be around people who, uh, oftentimes I think people become who we we think they can be. And it's the rare individual who can kind of rise above or below their circumstances. And I tried very hard to rise or or sink beneath my circumstances (laughs) for a long period of time. And then eventually... Uh, you know was put in a position where I could kind of flourish
0: yeah and I think y- you've you've made reference to that as well like no matter kind of how much you fucked up like the doors weren't closing and I think that's something that we you know I certainly have taken for granted Um and you know I my use of psychedelics is one example sure they're they're uh legal in some states but I've been using them long before that and in other things that like just the the I don't even think twice about it I really don't and um and so that's the stuff that you know we'll get into more of the 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 two gentlemen that you represented and uh, I think just what Rolando in particular was thrown in jail for is just, it's just a great example of how, uh, what the inequity is. But without getting too far kind of ahead of myself here, I did love in the Netflix series, and it was in the beginning of uh, the second episode where you're like, yeah, when I, when I became an attorney, like I knew I didn't want to do defense, and then like what was the epiphany there? I mean I know it because I I I heard it but for people who haven't seen the series like what was it that inspired you?
1: Well, by the time I got to law school, uh you had mentioned I'd been a part of this uh kind of church ministry group and they had a very active racial justice uh component to it and I was doing a lot of uh independent reading. I mean, I spent um our time together at, in college, really, uh, I, I think any state school in the country, I would have been kicked out of. Uh, there was rampant great inflation at Amherst, and um, <laughs> yeah. in, in a way that was it is is it would be shocking, I think, to a lot of people listening. But in any event, once I kind of got my footing, I, I embarked on this, um, you know, late twenties period where I was. Um, just reading a lot of Martin Luther King. Uh, and when you read King, you end up reading a lot of Gandhi. And when you read Gandhi, you end up reading a lot of Tolstoy. And so by the time I got to law school, the church group I was involved in was um, uh, had an African-American ministry team and they had some land that they owned and they were just being treated unfairly. Uh, and we were having all these meetings about what to do. and 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 I woke up one day and was like, this would be a great time to be a lawyer. It would be a great time to be able to walk into court and, and file something and, and have a case and, and argue. So, um, I think once, uh, once I kind of had that, that realization that the law could be a force for good, that I, I wanted, uh, to do this, um, at that point, uh, I think it became a, a, a process that I, I was still wed to this idea that um, Gandhi's, one of his best books is the story of my experiment with the truth. And I was I, I really thought what needs to come out in this particular conflict that I'm seeing is the truth. And the way that I looked at criminal defense was was that was not a search for the truth. That was a search if you're a defense lawyer for some loophole to get your client off and to find some technicality. And, and so I had what I think a lot of people had in terms of uh, misconceptions about that profession. So as I went to law school, I was thinking, I I know what I don't want to do and I don't want to be a criminal defense attorney. Uh, so, um, and, and as I was finishing law school, I had a chance to clerk for a federal judge in, in Springfield, a man named Michael Ponzer. And um, for people who have a chance to, to have that kind of experience, uh, I would highly recommend it because in addition to um, having a first client who was a brilliant person, and if I kind of screwed up, it wasn't like he was going to go to jail. He'd just kind of be like, oh, no, you, that opinion you wrote where you cited that case, I think that might have been uh, overturned with another case, but I got to see all of these different cases that would come through, and I got to see different attorneys uh, appear uh, and argue them. and And the one of the attorneys that I saw was a guy named David Hoos, who was a criminal defense attorney, and boy, was he impressive! And and he was, you know, sometimes you find people in your life, and you're just like, wow, I want to be like you. And it wasn't so much what he was doing as a criminal defense attorney; it was the way he carried himself. It was his. Uh, just presence in a courtroom and a way of um, representing a a client who is clearly in a difficult spot. And so I was lucky enough when my clerkship was ending, he was in a place in his career where he was looking to bring somebody in and kind of teach the next generation of criminal defense attorneys. So that's how I ended up doing what I was doing. It was definitely not the thing that I kind of thought I was getting into when I uh, um, submitted my law school application.
0: Yeah. And I think just from my own experience, like when I think about a defense attorney, yeah, I think about the guy who got the the killer off or the rapist off on a technicality because of police work or whatever. And it's like, how can you, how can you live with yourself? But, but there, as, as the documentary does an amazing job, there are millions of, of people that are underserved in that capacity. And so I think when you look at it through that lens, it's like, oh yeah, it's, that's a, a not to judge noble, not noble, but it it feels there's a whole different bent to it. Um, yeah,
1: in regards to that. Yeah, I mean, most of the time when I, I represent somebody who is guilty, um, it's pretty obvious that they're guilty. It's the the the, the, the borderline cases are, um, you know, th- those are those are not the norm. So a lot of times, somebody comes in and, and they say they're innocent, and they are innocent. And other times, they come in and say, "Look, I did this." I got caught doing it, and it becomes uh, the the work of a criminal defense attorney. It overlaps with like social work in a lot of ways. So you you have these people who come before you, and they've got this legal problem. And sometimes the legal problem is the tip of the iceberg. And um, a defense attorney does very little service for their client if that's all they're focused on. If they look at a person and say, "Oh, here's a law school problem," this is a human being who often is in a position because of um, terrible things that have happened to them the system has failed them uh, innumerable times innumerable ways and my job becomes to kind of excavate that and figure out how did this person get to this spot where they're now charged with a serious crime what were the what were the, the turning points in this person's mm-hmm. life um, and what are the the places down the road what are the things that i can help this person do to address the root causes so that we can go into court and say look um, you know, yes, this happened, and yes, that was bad. But here's a plan for moving forward that is um, rehabilitative and isn't as uh, punitive, and in a way that can can serve them and it can serve the community.
0: Yeah, I think what we're we're seeing, or at least I'll speak for myself. What I'm seeing right now is I'm really um, I feel like I'm attuned to the people who are pointing out that the protests and that and the, they're making it about um, the looting and stuff like that, okay? Now, we know there are bad actors out there, whether it's Antifa, whoever, but nevertheless, it, it's a symptom of a problem. The symptom is there's some stuff getting burned down and, and all that's not good, but it's getting people's attention to hopefully... I think we think the idea is is getting people's attention to the root of the problem, and that's the inequity that you know that I think a lot of us are finally starting to wake up to and owning and knowing that just because we've been privileged doesn't. It's like you can't stay silent. Like the silence, and I do finally believe this: the silence is is really just, you know almost advocating for the racist policies and the racist ideas. And and we have to start to act in ways that are, you know, that express anti-racist ideas and support anti-racist policies. And, and it's a, it's a process of learning and unlearning your own racist, my own racist ideas. And, um, I think if we can just start to own that and be okay with it and just forgive ourselves for that, we can start to actually do some good with it um and so anyway we, we can talk about that a little a little bit later um but i do wanna i really wanna circle back to um again i I knew you for three years in college we we were off by a year um and I had no idea that you had lost a friend um and as if that wasn't hard enough you described what you spent the next number of years of your life doing and and i i just had never you know everybody has their reasons for drinking and drugs and and checking out um but i it was really the first time i had ever heard kind of that experience and so if you could just share that i think it might shed some light into people where you know again People, these are these are symptoms of a of a deeper problem for people. They just expresses as drugs and alcohol,
1: right? And and I and I think it's important to kind of uh, at the outset say this. Like, um, I'm going to share with you, you know, the reasons why I um, took very few sober breaths for almost 10 years. Um, but those reasons, I don't want it to be. Um, you know, oftentimes, I think when white people discuss their this has happened in the opioid uh, crisis where suddenly we were realizing oh this is a this is a medical problem this is a public health problem as opposed to a a, a criminal uh, uh issue in our society so uh i i think that the people that i represent who have um issues with addiction um the early childhood trauma that i hear is way way beyond what my own experience uh is So, I mean, I I think that I, I, I it's important for me to kind of own and, and share what my own experience was, but I don't want it to be, I, I, I'm reluctant to think, oh, well, that excuses who I was because um, so many people, it doesn't, at least the system doesn't excuse the ways in which they turn to what are, it really is street medicine for uh, a lot of the people that I end up representing. So... Growing up, I I had three younger sisters, and in sixth grade, uh, a a kid moved to town who was incredibly charismatic, and his name was Pete. He became my best friend for five years. We were just practically inseparable. Um, We, uh, I think in about eighth grade, just to kind of give a couple examples of this, um, we started uh, pooling our money. So every day, uh, we kind of take turns who the treasurer was, but every day, one of us at home room would just empty our pockets and the other person would carry our money for the day and it would come to lunch and be like, Hey, I need some money for, um, some pretzels or some, something, a snack or something. And so that person would dig in their pocket and that went all year long. That would be like, he'd work more in the summers, um, picking cucumbers and he'd have more money in the summers. I would probably get more money from my parents for lunch money during the year and so I'd have more and we just realized why why should one of us have more than the other should have um, and that uh, translated to things like we we grew up in a very small town it was a farming town there was not a single stoplight in the whole town and when you when you walked home from the junior senior high school you would walk by my house uh, on the way to his which was probably another three quarters of a mile and what we realized was, it wasn't really fair that he would have to walk further than I would. So we would just keep on walking past my house. And we had this particular tree stump that was we had kind of measured off as equidistant. And so every day we would just come to that spot. And one of us would, you know, we'd pause to see if somebody could say some smart ass parting comment and then walk back in the opposite directions. And the goal was not to race to see who would get back sooner. It was to see if we could reach our doors at the exact same time. So that's who he was for me. He was just this, um, he was a brother. He was somebody who I I just uh, uh, at his funeral said at the end of every day, like I, I would literally think like uh, I'd reached the capacity to love another person on the world. And this was, um, you know, and, and, I, and I can, to contextualize this, this is during like the eighties. This is like, homophobia so thick that you can just mm. you couldn't turn a corner in that school without hearing somebody calling somebody else a fag. And it was it was really, really intense. And I think what had happened was is we had just done these things that uh really should have exposed us for the tenor of the times to this kind of scrutiny, but it was so weird. I mean, we're sharing money with each other. We're acting like a, a married couple, and I think pe- I think peers were just like confused by the whole thing and thinking, "Are, are they acting strategically in some way here? Am, am I going to out myself as a moron?" Uh, and and so we got this pass, but it was it was just it was love. There's no other way to describe it. I just love this guy and um, three to. <laughs> Three days after, uh, sophomore year, uh, we went out and we had stolen some beers and we got drunk and, um, he just made a choice that I was spur of the moment. I don't think was premeditated in any way, but he ended up, uh, taking his life and it, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, just something that, uh, Changed the course of my life. It it, it um, impacted me in a way that, uh, you know, it, it it changed everything. It it it, it really did. It, it, and it continues to 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 change uh, everything. Um, so uh, this happened uh, in the June of 1988, and I was I had two more years of high school to go, and I was we're both athletes. I was an athlete. And I think that I just basically decided, um, the next two years, I was going to work through all of this sorrow and grief and anger on playing fields. And I became kind of a monster, um, in ways that were both, you know, good in terms of my performance and just bad. I was, uh, uh, I became the leading, uh, Soccer score in western Massachusetts my junior year um and and i I tied with some other kid I would have had i I'm, I'm sure the uh the 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 individual crown, but I got suspended for a game because I flipped the ref off in the middle of it. I was just this angry kid who got through the rest of high school through sports and then got to college and it was like that's when you eventually you saw me, and I was just in the middle of um self medicating uh mostly at the beginning with alcohol and then through with marijuana.
0: And to be fair, you didn't stand out from anybody else really in in the crowd. I mean, drinking was very prevalent many nights of the week. And so it was very much accepted. And so, you know, it was easy to think, oh, we're just all in this together partying and doing just enough to kind of get grades that are fine until we're done. but that wasn't the case with you. You weren't having the same experience as everyone else.
1: I mean, you know, I think I was I was 18, I was 19, I was 20, and I and I don't think I was in touch with what I was the the pain that I was experiencing. And I, I think that I was able to use uh alcohol in a way that helped me um not deal with it. And to be fair, you know, I wasn't ready to deal with it. I think sometimes uh um you know, substances are, I, I, I said, and you quoted at the beginning, they can be solutions as, as much as problems. Sometimes they create a lot of problems, but mm-hmm. um, it, it, it can buy somebody some time. Sometimes that, you know, just this ability to, uh, you know, disassociate from a, a reality that's really painful is, is important. And, and it's what we use drugs for over the counter drugs that's why we take aspirin we've got a headache we want to change our reality in the morning when i get up i take caffeine in the form of coffee because i want to change my 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 perception of reality so i think that um that's what i was doing but i don't think i was uh in a place where i was ready to to have that kind of self awareness
0: yeah and i think it, it it's it's such a uh almost a unique situation that it's almost like we don't know a parents don't know or the community is not even sure how to heal, help someone heal through that trauma. Um, and so to see you go, you know, headlong into sports and start to achieve these things, it's like, well, he's putting it to good use. And I think as we've gotten older and again, like quite likely you're way too young to even begin to process that. But I think that happens in later in life for for a lot of us, uh, particularly men, where we think um, you know we lose someone, or I shouldn't say we lose someone; someone passes away, and we've got to be strong for the family. And I think that that's this notion that we can't grieve or we we shouldn't grieve. And I think bypassing that opportunity is is an opportunity to heal that trauma and to acknowledge like. This part of my life that this person was a part of is gone. It's died. Like I need to, you know, grieve that loss, um, that version of you, in a sense. Um, but I think one of the things that struck me, Luke, is that you you talked about um, almost the fragility of of your relationships in the sense that you how you had to you felt like you had to show up for your friends because you were afraid of losing them. You're afraid of them something happening.
1: Yeah, I, I in, in retrospect, it, it,
0: it in addition to kind of turning to
1: substances to kind of self-medicate, I think my other strategy at that time in my life was um, this was so painful. And I think the only way that I could kind of enter and build new friendships and, and really connect with people is if I had this agenda um, Of keeping them on the planet. And I think that what I ended up doing in a lot of male relationships moving forward was uh, I would um, kind of reflect the things that I I liked in the friends that I had, and it might be a a, a speech pattern or just a general kind of outlook. And I became kind of a mirror. I was like bouncing back this goodness that I saw in people um, with an underlying goal of like letting them know like you in ways that, you know, males communicate. We don't communicate directly a lot. And this was a way to just help people like feel good about themselves because I wanted to keep them on the planet because I was scared of of going through something so painful again. So it was one of those things that I think, you know, I had moments in my life where I would develop these friendships and then i'd have all these kind of friends from different circles come together and i'd it would create this identity crisis because i was different with different friends in a way that made it difficult for them to be in the same room together because they knew me in in a different way and i became uh really self-conscious about that because it was um I, i think just that's how I got through a period of time and was able to, instead of, uh, I think the alternative would have been to just go completely like Hermit and and shut out and say, I'm not going to have any friends because that hurt too much. This was like, all right, I'll have friends, but I've got to go above and beyond for every friend that I have in a way that they'll feel um, good enough that nothing like
0: this will ever happen again. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, so I mean, we talked about it before, but like so much for you to carry that you didn't even realize it, right? And so, what was, what was it that kind of brought that to your awareness that, like, oh, this is what's been happening, and allowed you to see that and to start to heal that?
1: Uh, I, I think I got to a point where, uh, I mean, you you referenced it. I mean, a lot of that early substance misuse or overuse was in these places where it was they they were parties they were this was um the the whole like you were around people who were doing the same thing there was a lot of laughing there was a lot of just you know joy and i got out of that environment and you know i i went to new york city for a few years and then i i went to, to different places and i but, as I saw kind of people moving out of that and i I didn't have that same scene where I could kind of continue to to do this, I became kind of frustrated in myself and it and and it had just this kind of pain that became it was just bubbling up, and what I was using to deal with the pain wasn't strong enough, so I came to a point where I was either going to need stronger medicine or I was going to need to kind of treat what was ailing me and Fortunately, I opted for the latter and was able to kind of uh, have the space in, in, that I needed at that point in my life to um, to do some work that would put me on a on a path that I ended up on.
0: And tell me, and so let's let's like, what was it about the church ministry group that that really held you, that allowed you to kind of go through? the processes to heal. And I know we had talked about it a little bit before this, but there was a kind of a lot going on as well that was coming up for you in that time, not just healing this, but I think, um, given white privilege and that you trying to sort through all that. And so it was, a
1: yeah, so it was, um, it was a family church. Uh, the family was, uh, the, uh, Anderson's of, Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, Carlos Wayne Anderson was the minister at the church and, uh, his sister Rhonda Gordon was the music minister. And so, uh, Carlos was this unbelievably, um, just, uh, it, it's hard to put into words. He, he, uh, spoke extemporaneously. He was a genius. He, he is a genius. He's still doing what he does, but he, uh, Really, I think helped me have a very different understanding of my relationship with a creator or with the universe that um, that felt like uh, I know we're on the great unlearn here, like that was an unlearn for me. Like I, I'd grown up in the Catholic Church and 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 I don't think I I um, paid a lot of attention. I was an altar boy. I'd kind of go up there and daydream about God, but I you know a lot of the um, the air I was breathing in that venue, um, really left me feeling, uh, very judgmental about myself, about other people. And, and so he, uh, and his, uh, uh just interpretation, it was a, um, it was a Christian church, but it, it really honored all spiritual paths. So he was drawing from, um, every tradition you could, could name. And, And I think the overall message was one that was um, it was about love, and it was about connecting with with other people. And Rhonda, his sister, um, subscribed to that one hundred percent. But she also was like, "Yeah, that connection that we all want to have with each other is impossible because of white supremacy, racism, white privilege. It, It it is a barrier to those connections that we seek." um, in a spiritual community. So she, um, undertook this very brave project of trying to educate people like me about what our, uh, unearned white skin privilege meant, the ways in which we, um, that impacted and caused us to enter into a, into a place that, um, you know, uh, didn't, you know, sufficiently honor the 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 black leadership at the church and, and took uh liberties that you know if you if you stopped and pulled back you could see but you know we were all making mistakes and it was a place where uh you were it nobody was encouraging you to make these mistakes because they were hurting other people but it was in a in environment where people were really committed to um breaking down these uh uh, ways of being that were causing friction within a community that was trying to work together. So, um, I spent about five or six years uh, doing this uh, in a really intense way, and, and I'm still doing it. I, I I I really think it's one of those things uh, that is um, you, you you never get there. You're never at the place like, oh, okay, I am woke now. I understand this. Um, I, I can be an ally in 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 every moment. It is uh it is a lifelong journey to try to um counteract the uh the 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 stuff that we get inputted with as as kids about who we are in the world based on what we look like
0: yeah and i think it even would extend through you know genetically through our ancestors like that stuff is just unfortunately encoded and it is it's just like continuing to bring that awareness and i mean i think Just trying to give yourself the space to to be okay when you've been wrong, and I think when in my past when I've uh, struggled to make changes is because I haven't accepted what has actually already happened. It's already I've already done the thing, so I can't say I wish I didn't do it because I did do it. I have to make amends with it, Um, and it's hard sometimes, you know. But it's like, what's the alternative, you know? And I start to think about recently. Um, you know, what's happened, obviously, the, the latest has been with George Floyd, I think a, a, a lot of white people are starting to understand that whatever, for me, whatever uh, uncomfortableness I felt about choosing the right words, it's a fucking joke, when compared to what any person of color has had to deal with. And so it's like, I can get over my my little ego can get over someone calling me out for not saying the right thing they have their right to feel exactly how they feel um as long as i'm coming from a place of truth and being honest that's all i can do and stop worrying about it being perfect it's not going to be perfect Um, but it's it's i I need to start with listening and then um pay attention to what actions are arising i guess
1: yeah I mean, I think one of the the great tragedies uh, uh, of our time is uh, the way in which we have looked back at the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. I think there's this misconception that that was a movement um, that defeated racism. And what it did um, was uh, nobody at that time uh, was under the illusion that there wasn't racism. What the civil rights movement did is it managed to create this, um, you know, almost consensus that racism is bad, that it's wrong. Um, At the time that uh, all the marches and sit-ins back then were taking place, it was easy enough to find white people in power who would just say, yeah, (laughs) we have segregation. It's because we are the superior race and we need to maintain this. And all that, and, and I don't say all because people died doing this and, and gave so much. But what they did was they exposed what racism really looked like. It was attack dogs. It was fire hoses. And when we reached the point where Martin Luther King was assassinated on April fourth, nineteen sixty-eight, I think what right around there 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 became this critical mass of people who realized that was wrong. That was that, that this is not right. And instead of actually coming together as a society to dismantle it, to, to make reparations, to, to become a, a better, more equal place, we just decided, okay, let's all agree now racism is bad and move forward. And, and since but we didn't do any of the work that we needed to change the way that systems were um, built, that way that wealth was allocated. And so now we are living with the failure to, in the last half century, Move that forward, and we're actually, in some ways, when we talk about the the people in ultimate power, we've moved considerably backwards uh, in terms of what we're, we're we're willing to tolerate from from leadership. So that's where I think we're we're really struggling at this time.
0: And I, I think that yeah, really well said. And um, you know, this is just fresh on my mind because we watched the Netflix documentary Thirteenth, which if anyone. Hasn't watched it? Please watch it. It's it's powerful, um, but it, it it really talks about how racism just got institutionalized, and how it was the war on crime, the war on drugs. It was it was all these, and, and then you know basically with you know thirteenth the thirteenth amendment. I'm not a big historian, but it's the 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 end of slavery. But they had a, a, a loophole in there. That said, yeah, yeah, you're you're free unless you're convicted of a crime, and then you're a felon, and then you lose your vi- vote, your ability to vote, and da, da da da. And basically, it became another way to have this uh, institutionalized slavery, so to speak. And it just kept, you know, going more and more underground, and the white leadership figuring out new ways to incarcerate and, and arguably enslave, you know. Uh, minorities. And so you know that that's the thing when you watch that documentary it it all makes sense why we're where we're at today. I don't want to hear you know the population's 30% black and the 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 prisons are 70% black. There's a reason for that. It's not because they're bad actors. It's because as you know a, a one of the the laws that was put into place when crack came out was that one ounce of crack cocaine was equal to 100 ounces of powder cocaine. And unless you're unaware, those two drugs hit two different groups significantly. There's not a ton of people that are in lower income uh, socioeconomic situations that are gonna use the powder. They're gonna use the crack, it's cheaper. And so we we don't need to go down that rabbit hole, but there was and there's such inequality in just the sentencing. And I know this is something that you can speak to from your own experience. Um, but these are these are the the things that our brothers and sisters have been up against. And again, I'm just finally waking up to, right? And so I don't know. I don't need to know what the right thing to do is. I need to know that I don't know and whatever, whatever shape it takes, I have to be okay with that. Um, and so, I don't know. I'm just curious your, your client Rolando talk a little bit about what, let's get into the documentary a little bit and, and kind of what he was charged with, um, Kind sure. of a little bit of his history.
1: You know, it might be better to do um Raphael. Um okay. for just for the reason that Rolando's case is is still pending in uh Fair. he's got a civil rights lawsuit that the film uh references at the end. Um but um uh Raphael was somebody who uh you know had a hard start to his life and did the sort of things that that I did. It, responding to to challenges and gravitating towards substances and unlike me he was in a, a a time and a place uh in the world where that was heavily policed and so he became uh somebody who got arrested for uh being a, a drug offender and once that happened a lot of doors just slammed shut for him so he went through recovery he was became a father um but he was in this position where I think he had these limitations on him and he was in a relationship and he was trying to work through that, but he wanted to be a, a contributor. And the only real avenue for contribution based on uh, his criminal record, which is like this scarlet letter we put on people, um, was to uh, be somebody who kind of went back into the game. And so he had uh, a confidential informant Who somebody was working off presumably one of their own cases where they were up against it. And they decided, oh, Raphael's had a case before. Maybe if I really kind of push him, I can get him to do a a drug transaction. And then if I set him up, I'll go free. So he was um, eventually persuaded to be the middleman in a a transaction where he stood to to gain uh, 50 bucks. And for that, deal where he was going to make 50 bucks, the minimum mandatory uh, because he had a prior offense, was five years uh in state prison with two years on and after because it happened 997 feet from the boundary of a school that wasn't in session at the time. So and I'm just assuming
0: a thousand feet is the cutoff. Yep.
1: Yep. So that's how our system uh deals with with drug offenses um now i i you know i I think one of the things that is in professionally i I have these limitations about what the the kinds of arguments i can make and the kinds of uh things that i can say but um there's a great book out there uh, and there's a website that goes along with it called we are all criminals and i think the thing about the 13th is as you you mentioned, there's that amendment, one of the civil rights amendments uh, at the end of the civil uh, civil war, uh, basically said that you know servitude had been abolished, but for people who were um, convicted criminals. And the reality is is that we are all all the time doing things for which we we could be prosecuted, and we have a system, and we have so many laws um, that it, it becomes uh discretionary how is how is law enforcement going to um enforce the law and we have chosen to enforce the law and and really fetishize street crime um a couple of years ago these uh data scientists did this great uh um project where they uh created the equivalent of what we what modern policing now is all about algorithms and about mapping out, uh, you know, social relationships in these poor neighborhoods and figuring out who's talking to who and and what the connections are so that they can predict crime. And what these data scientists did was they said, why don't we take this same like mindset and we'll apply it to white collar crime? And so we'll find what are the white, where is white collar crime most likely happening? And if you go look at a map of New York, let's put in the red hot spots where we can think uh, that 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 crime is taking place. And oh, wait a minute. It's not up in Harlem. It's down here in and on Wall Street. And I'm sure in Chicago, you know exactly where the neighborhoods are, where fuck. Where, yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing can happen. So we've just decided um, that we're going to you know, really make the Rafael Rodriguez the ones that we're going to use our resources towards prosecuting when you have people who are engaging in these uh, white collar crime is a crime and it has repercussions that are profound in terms of pensions and 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 all different ways in which people's lives are hanging in the balance when corporate executives steal but the the amount of money the amount of attention that gets put onto that is a fraction of um what we have focused on which just so happens to be uh crimes that uh poor people of color are more likely to commit than uh people with Ivy League degrees
0: yeah and it's it- that, that that brings to mind um, this. Uh, I don't know if people are, are aware of this, but nine, I believe it's ninety five ish percent of cases are plea bargained. And so, just give people the kind of the reason what what happens to these 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 people who are arrested and they're charged and they're basically given two options: you can either plea bargain, or you know we'll do this to you.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have um set up a system where um where the government uh charges people, but the government uh has there's everybody has a constitutional right to a lawyer. If there's a possibility that you could go to jail, you are entitled to have a lawyer provided to you um, if even if you were too poor to, to, to have one on your own. So the government, the constitution, who we are as a people. The Supreme Court has interpreted that. Gideon v. Wainwright, 1960, I'm gonna say three, might be 61. Um, that's, that's the rule. That's who we are. That's who we've decided we are. But in, to fulfill that constitutional obligation, we have come up with systems across the country where public defenders are so overwhelmed. This, the, these jurisdictions are known as meet them and plead em. The The public defender goes down into lockup. Meets the defendant, you know, and, and says, "Look, nice to meet you, sir or ma'am. Uh, I've been appointed to represent you, um, and uh, I just talked to the DA, and they are going to offer you six months on this case. Uh, you're facing, you know, a possible penalty of two and a half years. Um, seems like this is probably the best we're going to be able to do. If you push it here, the DA said that offers off the table." And, um, so I think, you know, now's really it's, it's take it or leave it time. And the person who's standing on the other side of those bars is saying, I, I didn't do this. I, I didn't, I-, I didn't do it. I don't know why I'm here. Um, or yeah, I was in that fight, but he hit me first. Look at, I'm, I'm the one with the black eye here. Like I was defending myself and the, the public defender is so overwhelmed, uh, that they're not in a position to do any investigation. And they're going to say, look, all right, uh, you're going to be held um, probably longer than six months before you have that trial. So even if you beat the rap, you don't beat that ride down uh, from the street to the jail and into lockup into the, uh, the the pretrial facility where you're going to be. So um, every day across this country, people take those deals, whether they did it or not, or whether they, uh, they have these uh, things in mitigation that should be said for them. That that lawyers and it's not the lawyers' fault. The lawyers are doing the best they can. Those public defenders, uh, by and large, are a group of people who are doing what they do because they have, you know, this commitment to helping the the least among us. But we've set it up in a way where where they really can't do their job in a way that is fair and and, and gets just results. And so that's why we have ninety five percent of cases ending up at, at, at pleas is because. Um, the There aren't enough uh, lawyers who represent the poor, and we have a system where people are held pretrial instead of um, out at liberty. If you're in jail, um, David Hoos, I mentioned it before, he said the most important point in any criminal case is at that arraignment. If the defendant gets held on a high bail and they can't come out, it warps the whole process, and they either plead it out that day or that first pretrial conference 30 days later. They'll take the best they can get because they just can't, um, in in these less serious cases, afford the consequences of waiting for their day in court.
0: Well, not only that, they have jobs. Now they can't go to their job. And then it, it, it's, you know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned the high bail and just bail in general. That is something that is, again, just kind of as I'm combing through like ways that people can help. Um, there are some bail organizations that are doing, it seems to be some good work. Can you talk about that? Like what, like the benefits of that and what other organizations people are, want to put their time and money behind? What would you suggest?
1: Yeah, so there is a national bail fund organization in every state, uh, I believe has local chapters. And basically what they do is um bail is what happens when a person is charged and the judge uh says all right um i i need to have some assurance that you're going to come back and so if i make you pay some money the idea is is if you run if you don't show up if you default we'll take your money and so they put these bails on people as a way to kind of ensure that they'll come back, but oftentimes they're set at amounts that poor people can't pay. So they end up in jail with a $500 bail and they just don't, most Americans do not have uh, access to $500 uh, about, uh, they did a study a couple of years ago and, and that amount of money is just off limits to so many people. So if you're charged with something and they set that kind of bail, then you're stuck in jail until your next court appearance, which is probably not going to be for another month. So there are these organizations out there, these bail funds, and what they will do is they will look at these kind of minor cases and they'll say, all right, you don't have the $500. We'll put it up for you. We'll put up that $500. And when you come back and the case is eventually resolved, we'll take it back and put it in the fund. And what's amazing about this are two things. One is people rarely rarely ever run they always they are coming back particularly when when people they don't know are coming into court and saying we'll put up the 500 the the uh you've heard there's no honor among thieves well there is honor among people who are charged to have bail funds work with them <laughs> the second thing that's amazing that happens statistically is a lot of these cases end up getting flat out dismissed or acquittals they are they're bad cases that the, co- the the government can't prove. The only thing they can do is they can hold people and then cause those people to have to um, plead it out because they can't take any more pretrial detention. So that is, these bail funds right now in this moment that are being used for for protesters are great, and, and, I, and I'm a big proponent of it. And, and I think, but when the protests stop, these continue to be organizations that are doing really good work uh, that are causing uh, a real dent in um, prison populations. So I think that's a great uh, way to, um, you know, contribute uh, financially. Is to find a bail fund, uh, volunteer at a bail fund. If you can't uh, financially contribute, they need people to go post the money, to sign things, and 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 they're just a really. Uh, my experience is a really great group of people who have. who have a really good understanding of the ways in which the system uh, um, uses a person's poverty against them.
0: Yeah, and I love the idea too that um, with the that this fund can it it doesn't necessarily get drained. You know, as people come back and show up, the money comes back, and it can actually the more people give, it can actually grow and help more people. It's not just like every year it needs to get another x amount of dollars to re you know kind of replenish the. The funding,
1: yeah. I mean, one of the um, things that we're you know we're living through now with these protests, and I think nobody has seen anything like this since Ferguson, um, when when Ferguson happened, when Michael Brown uh, was killed. Uh, I think that caught the the country off guard in a lot of ways, and 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 it wasn't one of those ones that happened on camera, and and and, and people just from the outside looking in. Um, myself included, are like, why is this like the case that everybody is, why was this like the match? What was the gasoline in that environment that caused that to detonate? And so that question was on the mind of the Justice Department. The United States Justice Department went to Ferguson to try to do an investigation and say, "Why? Why, why did everybody get so upset here with this one particular case? And what they found was Ferguson, Missouri had decided to fund its municipality with fees and fines for just the most piddling shit, but there was like a quota system in place where a mostly white police force was just ticketing the fuck out of a mostly black population. They were hitting them with uh, it's called cash register justice. They'd give them uh, a fine on uh, you know jaywalking, and and then you know a fine for not paying your fine and a surfine on your fine. Or a fine for um, uh, you know failing to pay your parking tickets, or uh, it was it was that kind of piddling stuff. But it would be like disorderly conduct, and, and they would give you a year's probation, and there would be a probation fee, or it'd be a possession of marijuana case, and there'd be a drug analysis fee. And so that population was a piggy bank that the poorest folks became the the source for which this municipality um, funded all of its operations. They called it user fees for the privilege of being prosecuted. We're just going to suck the living shit out of a whole community. And that was, I, that's what the justice department found was a precursor to this explosion happening. You had people who were so pissed off and rightfully so from being used, um, by the system that when something like that happened, then you have these, um,
0: these explosions. Actually I had no idea that that's what that's what was going on there. Wow. I mean n- not surprised but that's that's it, right? Like we're not surprised like that's what's super fucked up is we're not surprised. Like that's that's why it's time for those of us who say they don't want to hear from a white person was like no, it's we need to stand beside our brothers and sisters. They need that voice, because unfortunately that's the one that's often heard. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's, 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 so complicated and, and it's and again, so
1: complicated. It's, it's so complicated and, and mistakes are going to happen. And, and people sometimes uh, I, I think you, you touched on it before, but I think that the phrase that I think is a, a big challenge here that um, we all can be guilty of is this white fragility. Like, like we 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 step out with the best of intentions and we realize we get feedback that is totally different from what we thought. We thought we were doing a good thing because we were using our voice, and as it turns out, we were using it to drown out the voice of a person of color or a, a woman or a, a, a person um uh who is poor or has you know some other way in which the they are underprivileged. So those moments are going to happen. And I think what we we can't get caught up in is this kind of defensive mentality. Of, but I, I I didn't mean that. I didn't mean to, to hurt your feelings or step on your toes or diminish your voice. I was trying to add to your voice and listen and just say, all right, thank you. Thank you for giving me that feedback because I really do want my good intentions to have good results. And maybe next time I, I can um, use what I'm learning here uh, to, to make that happen. And I think the key thing here that where you really want to see, uh, things change is, is not putting it on people of color to educate us. The more white people can, um, take some of that load off of, of people of color so that, uh, that it's not their job to educate us, that we can learn and, and, and approach each other in ways that are loving and that are not about like, I'm more woke than you, but like, Hey, let's, I just, here's what I noticed. And, and, and I've done this. Like I've been in these, this position and I, and, and maybe this is one of those things that you might want to get this feedback because it'll, it'll make you a better ally the next time. Those conversations are really, really hard. Um, but I think those are, are are super important. If we're, if we're going to be good allies, um, we can't just rely on our intentions. We have to um, perpetually, be open to the idea that
0: uh, what we think we're doing well is something we're actually doing poorly. Yeah, exactly. And we are going to get criticism. And that's, as you said, that's positive feedback for us. So it's like, put the ego aside. This is not about someone trying to prove you wrong. And if they are, then they, they have the right to feel the way they feel. But what are, what is your intention? Your intention is to do good. Okay. Then if someone is giving you feedback that what you're doing is not good, then pay attention and say again it's like what can i again back to this idea like we don't know we, and we there are so many things we can't know and we have to rely on rely on your friends that are in this situation what what can i do right you know I,
1: w- are, one, one thing like i said before like public defenders people do this work they go into it with really really great values like when when i talked before about these meet him and plead him kind of jurisdictions where they're doing triage, studies show that public defenders like prosecutors, like judges, like police officers, um, when they are looking at their case, like what's the case that I'm actually gonna litigate, Um, it matters what their defendant looks like, their client looks like, if they are a person of color, particularly if they are a dark person of color, if they are um, within the African American community, if they are darker skinned, Studies show that public defenders tend to look at that file and be like, yeah, I, I'm going to put that one to the side. And so it is everywhere. Um, it really is the sort of thing like um, there was a, a great uh, movie not too long ago uh, about a lawyer named Rob Lott, uh who uh, was a corporate uh, attorney. Uh, it's called Dark Waters. Mark Ruffalo now star, stars in it, but it's about Teflon and how Teflon um, was this wonder invention that you know gave us nonstick pans in the 50s the only problem was is they what they did with the toxic waste was they started just dumping it in these places to the point where now every single living organism on the planet has some of this shit in their system that's how i think about racism that is what it is so out there that it's in all of us. And it's not just in white people either. I mean, you will see people of color who will speak very intelligently about the ways in which their own internalized oppression causes them to um, do things that they didn't wish. So we are all fighting this toxin that is in all of us. And and if we don't, it's it's gonna cause the, the kind of harm that it's been causing for the last 400 years
0: mm, yeah well said well let's let's shift gears let's get into the documentary a little bit and um you know I don't want to take too much of your time and so j- can you can you lay out for people just in general you know what was happening and you know i'll, I'll poke it a poke and prod a few questions along the way but Give them a little background if they haven't seen it yet.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, back in uh, the summer of 2012, um, there were two main places in the state of Massachusetts where uh, unknown substances believed to be narcotics were seized and they were deposited for forensic analysis. One was in Boston called the Hinton Drug Laboratory and one was in Amherst uh, in the western part of the state. Uh, on the campus of the University of Massachusetts. And basically in every criminal case, every drug case, one of the things that the government has to prove is that the substance in question is in fact a narcotic, that it's illegal to possess, it's a controlled substance. And a surprisingly high number of things that the police sees turn out not to be. Uh, anywhere between 5 and 10% of what they pick up is turns out to be a beet bag or some... They they bust through the door on a word of a snitch and somebody's got their Betty Crocker cake mix out there and the police grab it uh, and and there are lots of examples if you want to go online and look for it there was one uh, woman down in Georgia who spent uh, about seventy days in jail she got pulled over on the side of the road and they did a a, a test on the side of the road. They saw this thing in a bag and it was blue and they grabbed it and they did a test and it came back positive for meth. And that woman went to jail on a million dollar bond for 70 days until they sent it to the laboratory and the laboratory with the person with the white coats, they looked at it and they found exactly what this woman had been telling them, that this blue thing that she went to jail for 70 days was cotton fucking candy. No. Yeah. So you have these moments that happen where these lab technicians are so important uh, in terms of figuring out, was this an actual crime? So in the Boston laboratory, there was a chemist there by the name of Annie Dukin. And she uh, was kind of viewed herself as a cop in a lab coat. And she she gloried in the idea that she could do more samples than anybody else. And her numbers were off the charts. And the reason she was able to do so many samples is she didn't actually do the tests. She would just look at that bag of blue stuff and she'd be like, oh yeah, that looks like meth to me. And she would write meth or cocaine or heroin. So she was dry labbing uh, is what it was called. Or in some cases where somebody would check her work and be like, hey, you know what? This is actually cotton candy. She'd be like, let me see that. And she would take from another sample of actual meth and she would introduce it and be like, no, why don't you test it again? I got meth here. And they'd be like, oh yeah, I guess it is meth. So that's what (laughs) she was doing. And she got caught doing it and she confessed to doing it. And it created this huge problem for the whole criminal justice system because she had been so prolific and she had signed her name on so many of these cases that you were literally in a position of wondering, there are tens and thousands of people who were impacted and the system, nobody knew who they were. And it was, it was this huge crisis in the criminal justice system. So I practice out in the Western part of the state and we're kind of the hinterlands. Uh, the folks <laughs> in Boston really look at us like they're country cousins. And we at our uh, drug lab in January of 2013, one of the chemists there was a woman named Sonia Ferrick, And she got arrested. For stealing and tampering with drugs, and the immediate response to that of law enforcement was, whew, Thank God we caught her right when she started doing this, and that this wasn't <laughs> another Annie Dukin case." So just trust us. This is uh, we we she was a just dedicated uh, employee who was doing all the right things right up into that moment where we put the handcuffs on because we we caught it in time. And I had. Clients who were affected, who had Sonia Ferret cases, and and I was like, wait a minute, how can we possibly know that? And they're like, just trust us. And so the documentary is about uh, in Boston, like trying to figure out how to give like our system of justice is set up on an individual basis. But this was twenty five thousand people. Like, how do you deal with a crisis that implicates that many people? And then out in Amherst, like. The the series really tracks the experience of of trying to get to the bottom of how long, in fact, this chemist was doing it. If they if the state was right about this initial out of the gate proclamation that nobody's due process rights were violated, and you know not to spoil it, but yeah, it turns out it was not uh, uh, just in the nick of time. She'd been doing this day in day out for nearly a decade
0: yeah and so they had it they they had tried to cut their losses and say what it was about four months that they of of convictions or of uh you know lab reports
1: yeah, so what had happened was the attorney general herself, uh Martha Coakley, the day a- after Sonia Farrick's arrest, did a press conference and said, um nobody's rights have been violated in any way as that weeks kind of pass and months kind of pass. There were these random retests that they did, uh, where it it they could find like six months before there was a sample that Sonia ferrick got where it tested for a very pure cocaine, and then they retested it at another lab and they found that it just had the, like the trace amounts of cocaine. And so judges looked at that and the government kind of looked at that and they said, yeah, she probably sampled, uh, tampered with that too, but we couldn't prove that she had. Tampered with anything before then, so they basically came up with this paradigm where if you had a case that was resolved before July 2012, it was SOL for you. You were just there was no way that you were entitled to any kind of relief uh, on the ground that a, a a government agent in your case engaged in egregious misconduct.
0: And and again, I don't want to give again too much of it away, but. Um just paint a picture for people who aren't in the law um field of how how rare the charge of misconduct that was given to the assistant attorney general that it was was it Chris Foster and, and Ann Kesmeric?
1: Yeah, so basically what ended up happening was uh we had this in 2013 these hearings to try to um figure out the timing and scope of Sonia Farrick's misconduct. And after a judge came up with this paradigm of July, 2012 is when it started. um, it turned out that, uh, I was able to get access to some evidence that I'd been denied and was able to push that date back, um, further and learned about the existence of yet more records, which would show that it did in fact, as I said before, um, start, uh, in August of 2004. Um, so we had this hearing, uh, in December of 2016, uh, that's featured in the film where, uh, me and some other attorneys brought in, uh, actors from the state police and from the attorney general's office and a judge issued an opinion in June of 2017 saying that two particular assistant attorneys general, uh, perpetrated a fraud on the court. And so that, um, that was rare. Like most, it is not that rare when a court will find that the government hid evidence that happens. (laughs) It happens a kind of a shocking amount. And sometimes it's because the, the, the the prosecutors are really just trying to bury things and, and railroad people. But I think more often than not, it's because they too are overworked and they don't understand why something would be exculpatory why it would be like a key piece of evidence and so they put things under the rug but for the people whose lives are turned upside down by this obviously whether they did it intentionally or negligently um you know they're they're the ones who are suffering in jail but even in the cases where they the courts find that prosecutors Um, deliberately withheld important exculpatory evidence. There's kind of this professional courtesy that they do where they don't name the prosecutors. They write these opinions and they say the prosecutor or the assistant district attorney. And so the fact that there was even an opinion that named names was extraordinary. And and so um, it's one of the, uh, the great frustrations, I think, of Doing the work that I do that you know people can, um, you know, make these decisions that really harm the people that I, I'm representing and that I grow to really care about, and that the there aren't any re- repercussions, so to speak, of uh, in almost all the cases,
0: yeah. And, I, and I'll just I'm gonna leave it at that, um, because I really want people to go watch the documentary because it, um, you said that you were denied. I think that is one of the gross understatements. The way that they kept um this evidence and what whatever they were doing to try to protect themselves is almost unfathomable. And so I think the documentary did an, an amazing job just from a viewer's standpoint of really showing your frustration, but also your ability to just like say, fuck it. Like I there's something, something's not right. Something's not right. And and the way you kind of followed the breadcrumbs is is was pretty amazing. And so I'll I'll leave the the uh, the listeners to go watch that on their own. But but really, give us this from the time that it came apparent in Amherst that there was some misconduct to what was what was that? Was it four years? What was the kind of?
1: Sure. So Sonia Farrakh got arrested in January of two thousand and thirteen. Um, she ended up pleading guilty in January of 2014. I found um, the first smoking gun in the case in October of 2014. I then joined forces with another attorney who's not featured all that prominently in the the, the docu series, but her name is ought to ring out. Uh, she is one of the great unsung heroes. Uh, her name's Rebecca Jacobstein. Um, she's a full-time public defender, uh, just became this, this person in my life that, uh, um, you know, we sent so many emails back and forth, uh, had so many phone calls. I mean, uh, my, my law partners did not see as much of me as Rebecca did for years. Uh, so she and I found additional evidence in March of 2015, there was then an investigation as to why the evidence was uh, suppressed, that resulted in April of 2016 with a finding that I was the only one that did anything wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, which uh, again, it, I think is one of those moments. Uh, and, and you know, for people who watch the, the series, you'll see me like I'm like even recounting it, getting all worked up. Like they said I did something wrong. Um, that was so important for me, uh, after the fact in that there was this police report, it was 15 pages. And it just basically the, the upshot was that I engaged in unprofessional, negligent, and baseless conduct. And it was, it was, there was, it was misrepresentations. It was failure to appreciate what actually they were finding. But at the end of the day, Uh, I was so upset. And I, and after like days of like my face being beat red and just furious, I had this epiphany, like I have so many clients who show up and I hand them the police report and they're like, that didn't happen. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. But I never got it until then. Like to see your own name on a police report with just a bunch of lies is so upsetting. It's the official narrative. And for as an attorney, so many times, I think I, I just kind of was like, "Yeah, don't worry about it. that they're not going to be able to introduce that into any evidence, and they're like, "But this is a police report." And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it, it's trust me uh, we'll we'll bring that out at trial uh, uh, and but it, it's a big deal when 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 somebody creates a official document and totally just misrepresents who you are and what you've done, so that was uh, a, a part of the journey. <laughs> And um, and then it wasn't until the following summer, June t- 2016, when a judge in these individual cases ruled there had been a fraud upon the court. And then that fall, Rebecca kept going with this um, and managed to convince the Supreme Judicial Court. In they issued a decision in October of 2018 that just wiped out what turned out to be about 16,000 of the amherst cases convictions that were overturned and vacated and dismissed
0: amazing yeah amazing and yeah for you to just to to go through that experience like it's one of the things i talk about on the podcast is we can only know so much from hearing about something you know and and i think that's a perfect example like you had your own experience like motherfucker i get it now i finally get it we yeah. don't get it until we have the experience, and we can't. We can fool ourselves into thinking we do, but we don't. And yeah. I think that's a perfect example of the importance of, you know, really trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes because you can be dismissive. You're just like, yeah, well, you know, we got bigger fish to fry, almost. But they're like, this is yeah. fucking important to me. <laughs> yeah, you're like, now I get it. Yep, they're actually calling your integrity, you know, into question. You're right. like, What the fuck? Right. Yeah. So along those lines, and, and maybe that's it, or you know, one of the things I, I'm trying to be more mindful of with the podcast is, you know, as you and I know, we can't change anything, whether it's our long held beliefs, um, these ideas about how we're supposed to be in the world until we become aware of them. Yeah. And so I think awareness is, is like a is a big key. And for me, I've had a few different kind of awakenings um, that have really helped reorient me in my own life and to see things differently. Um, Do you have a point that really that you could point to that just shifted you um, that allowed you to view things, your lives, your beliefs as not your own and things that were Mm. given to you in a sense? Or even uh, is there something today that you're just like kind of turning over in your mind? Like this is, I don't, I've been, I felt like this for 40 some odd years, but I don't even think this is me.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I talked about it earlier and I think that was more, um, you know, as as somebody in my mid twenties who was trying to figure out who I was and, and the ways in which I um, was letting a, a past trauma kind of dictate. uh my personality. I think one of the things that I've, and this, I don't think it's as, um, it's not as big a shift, but I think it's one of those things that in the long run is going to be real important for me that I've, I've really come to appreciate. And that's, uh, you know, there is so much ugliness in the world. And uh, my my job as I view it is to try to make it a little bit less ugly. That's, that's the best that I can do when I'm in a court. Like I'm not painting the Mona Lisa when I'm trying a case, I'm trying to prevent something bad has already happened. I'm trying to make it a little less bad. Um, and I think I I'm, I'm comfortable with that as like my lot in life. Like that's the, that's the, what I'm kind of, that's my calling to, to, to do. But I think for even those of us who have that kind of calling, we have to kind of find ways um, to, to be around beauty and to be around people who are creating beauty. Um, my wife is a potter. And, uh, and and I can't tell you how like sustaining it is to um, participate in in the small way that I do with, Helping her bring these just beautiful works of art into the world, she she's got a wood-fired kiln, and so she spends all this time on the wheel. She throws them, and she um, glazes them, and and but at the end of the day, there's like this amazing, like it's almost like a barn raising from like you know 18th century where a group of people come together and uh, spend 24 straight hours throwing wood into this just huge oven and and listening to the fire and, and being a part of a process that at the end of it creates these beautiful works of art. And I, and I think that um, in order to do the kind of make the world less ugly kind of work in a way that you don't burn out, I think you have to find your ways in life to be around the people who are making beautiful things. And that's my, my recent thing is like uh, some, you know, that that if if I I mean you got to take care of yourself you've got to um, you got to exercise you got to do all this but just to be um, in the presence of people whose calling is balances that out is is I think important so I think we all can find ways to um, be around beauty and be around uh, community like find those those things like that firing that brings people together who are working shifts and and chucking wood and stacking wood, like all of that is a, um, makes me feel like I've got a chance at doing this longer than I otherwise would.
0: I love that. That's a perfect uh, note to end on. Thanks for so much for being on here, brother. It's great to see you.
1: This was absolutely my pleasure. And, and, uh, Cal, congratulations for, uh, for doing this. I think, uh, I, I I know a little bit about your story and I know I'm not the first (laughs) podcast, but I, uh, i really admire uh um what you're, the choices you're making about your life and about uh the you know it's it's very easy to just kind of stay with what you've been doing in life and to make big changes and to ask big questions um you know has rep, ripple effects out there for mm. a lot of people so thank you for uh for that and for uh extending this invitation oh that's awesome thank you i love you man
0: all right Good to see you You've been listening to The Great Unlearned. For more information, please check out the show notes or head on over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events and retreats. If you liked what you heard today, click subscribe and share this with friends that might enjoy our platform. Please leave a five-star rating in iTunes as this really helps us spread our message.
1: You can.